following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. If you could add more time to your day, what would you do with it? Let me just go ahead and answer that question for you. You'd either waste it (laughs) or you would physically wear yourself down to a frazzle. Uh, God has given us a 24-hour day for a specific reason. Uh, None of us can do any more or any less in that 24-hour period than what we're capable of doing. Uh, You could wish for more time. You could want more time. uh, But 24 hours is all you get in a day, period. Uh, Just a few days ago, I think it was last weekend, probably, uh, Marcia and I had finished up a pretty long day. And my day usually starts around 4.35 a.m. every morning, no matter what. It's just like clockwork. Sometimes the alarm goes off. Sometimes I'm up way before the alarm. Most of the time, it's 11 or 11.30 by the time my head hits the pillow. So there is a good reason why Marcy has so many sleeping pictures of me posted on Facebook. <laughs> and uh, I, I think about that all the time. You know, it's, it's pretty justifiable that I sit down and fall asleep sometimes. But how many of you actually a- average more than six hours of sleep a night? Is anybody here? That's okay, y'all, y'all do pretty good with that. I don't. Uh, about five hours is as good as I can get most of the time. That's not a continuous. I think last night I did hit it pretty hard last night, though. But uh, we finished up a pretty pretty busy day the other day. I'd, I'd gotten up, did my exercises, did my chores, did my studies, did my reason uh, reading. We we got some uh, some home projects that we were working on, uh, a few visits, a few phone calls, a few meetings. Uh, several different things, and it was late in the night before he was winding down, and we we had a little exercise routine that we'll get in, we'll stretch and uh, do our little exercise, and I just kind of fell flat on the floor, and I said, you know what, what if we had a 28-hour day? Wouldn't you like to have a 28-hour day? And she kind of rolled over me and said, no, <laughs> let's, let's don't do that. Let's don't make the day any longer. But I think at some point in time, we, we've all wished, you know, if I could just stay up around the clock, I, I'd get more done. If I had more time in the day, I'd, you know, you probably wouldn't be any more productive than you are right now. Uh, I used to work shift work, and man, those 16-hour days, 18-hour days, you pull a shift and a half working 12-hour shifts, that, that takes a toll. I don't know how it does for you, but on me, it took a toll on my body, and it took me several days to get reset, uh, get caught up. And going back again. Well, it's just as human beings, we're wired to have rest at certain times of the day, and we can only go so long, uh, no matter how much time you wish you had in a day. Back in uh, 1973, Jim Croce wrote the song, Time in a Bottle. And I looked at the lyrics of that song and what it was all about and thought about that particular concept. Um, you know, there are times, there are moments and times, there are scenes that you replay in your mind. Uh, There are moments in your life when you wish, man, if I could just capture this moment and make it last a little bit longer, I would enjoy it so much more. We look at a time here at a victory that uh, takes place in Joshua chapter 10 where that actually happened for a specific purpose. We're going to talk a little bit tonight about miracles. We're going to talk a little bit about time management We're going to talk about moments when it seems like time just stands still. There are situations when we get into where we're thinking in the back of our mind, is this ever going to get over with? (laughs) 
We can't get it over with quick enough. But there are times in our lives where we just say, man, I wish I could make this time, this, this event last a little bit longer. I wish I could keep my kids at home a little bit longer. I wish I had my health just a little bit longer. There are many different things that we wish we could have a little bit longer time with. Joshua makes a request. Uh, for some of us, it would seem far-fetched, but I think to have seen what Joshua has seen in his lifetime, uh, it is not beyond the realm of possibilities for him. Just think of all the miracles that Joshua got to experience during his lifetime. We looked last week at the battle at Ai and the sin of Achan. Uh, what we see here tonight kind of leads up from that. Uh, the word is getting out now as the Israelites begin to conquer the the promised land, the land of Canaan. Uh, all the other kingdoms are hearing about the Israelites and what their God has done for them. Uh, it happened back in the battle of Ai that we looked at last week. Uh, in, in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we see the same thing happening with three other kings and three other kingdoms as well. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, they all mention the enemies of Israel hearing about their victories and fearing what God was going to do next. One of them was Gibeon. The other one was the king of Jerusalem. The other one was the king of Hazor. This is actually the first time that Jerusalem is mentioned in the New Testament. Now, the city itself is mentioned, but it falls under a different name. Uh, Salim is one of the names that you'll see Jerusalem mentioned as in the Old Testament. But this is one of the first places in the scripture where it's actually called the city of Jerusalem. So these three kings, they hear about what the Lord is doing for the Israelites. However, upon hearing what they, uh, upon hearing that they were next, that these cities were next, uh, the Gibeonites especially, uh, they tricked the Israelites into making a peace treaty with them. So we see this in chapter 9. This is going to kind of lead you up into chapter 10 that we're going to cover. So the Gibeonites were a little deceptive in what they did. They sent a team towards the Israelites. They said, instead of letting them attack our city, let's see if we can trick them into making a peace treaty with us. And let's see if we can reap some of the benefits that their God is bestowing upon them. So they sent a team towards the Israelites they approached the Israelites having old saddlebags on their donkeys with all of their possessions in them. Uh, they had old wine skins. They had patched up sandals. They had old tattered clothing. And all of the bread and the possessions that they had were dry and moldy. Now the neighboring kingdoms uh, gang up on what happens next. Uh, the Gibeonites... Talk to the Israelites. They say, hey, look, we're, we're just poor, innocent bystanders. We don't bring peace with you. We can't fight with you. We hear what your God is doing. We want to be a part of who you are and what you're doing. And the Israelites make this peace treaty with them. So now these other kings, there's five kings that rise up against the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites go to the Israelites and they demand, hey, we want you to protect us now that we've made this peace treaty. So that's where we pick up at in verse 10. That's what's going on. The Israelites and the Gibeonites are under this peace treaty. And we see these other five kingdoms rise up against them. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. 
And now the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zadak, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Pyram, king of Jarmoth, Japhiah, king of Lashish, and Deborah, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmoth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up. They and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, stop right there for just a moment. The reason we're spending so much time on hearing from the Lord on Sunday mornings is for this reason right here. Because when the enemy comes up against us, whenever we are looking for the victory, the only way that we're going to find it is to be able to hear from the Lord. This is not the first time that Joshua has had this type of conversation from the Lord. Chapter 1, the Lord speaks to him intently as he uh, passes on leadership from Moses to Joshua. Joshua then come, becomes the man that hears from God. And before they went into their battle at Ai the second time, if you'll notice that Joshua petitioned the Lord, sackcloth, ashes, he mourned, he wept, he got before the Lord, and the Lord told him how to have the victory at Ai. And so for us to have the victory, for us to continue to move forward, and for us to defeat the enemy that stands before us, that wants to kill, steal, and destroy, we've got to be able to hear from the Lord. And the very first words that the Lord says to Joshua are words that reaffirm what he told him back in chapter 1. Do not fear. Fear kills our faith worse than anything else does. As a matter of fact, fear completely cancels out your faith. God has not saved us to live in fear. God has not given us his word for us to live in fear. God wants us to live with the boldness and with an understanding that he wants us to lead the victorious Christian life. But we've got to be able to hear his voice and tune in to what he has to say to us. They're in a bad situation here. Five kingdoms against the Israelites and the Gibeonites. Vastly outnumbered. And God wants Joshua to have the assurance that I am with you. I want you to be victorious. So the first thing you need to do is calm down. Do not fear them. For I have delivered them into your hand. Think about the promises that God gives us as a church. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. Lo, I am with you always, even until the ends of the earth. 
That's basically the same thing that God is telling Joshua here. Joshua, you don't have anything to worry about. I've got this battle already taken care of. All you have to do is follow my commands. Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilead. Let's stop right there. The first thing that I want you to see it takes place right here in verse 9. It's in the form of a question. What victories are you willing to labor for? When is the last time that you literally labored over something in prayer all night long? When is the last time that you wrestled with a decision, asking the Lord to give you direction and give you victory in a matter all night long? Joshua was ready to go. He was ready to strike while the iron was hot. God has given us the victory. Let's move right now. Let's surprise the enemy. Let's blindside them. Let's take them by surprise. Let's strike while the iron is hot. After marching all night, it says that they attacked suddenly or by surprise. Are are there matters in your life that you're eager to see happen? Are there situations in your life that you're willing to wrestle with all night long? Are you ready to march into victory, whether it be all night long or all day long? Time management. I, I think Joshua knows that time is of the essence here. Let's don't hesitate. Let's don't procrastinate. God has given us the victory. Let's move right now. It doesn't matter if we're war completely out from marching all night long. God says he's going to give us the victory and he's going to give us everything we need to conquer these five kingdoms that have come up against us. Are you zealous in your desire to move when God tells you to? Right now. God says, I want you to move right now. I want you to go speak to that neighbor about becoming a Christian. I want you to go speak to that loved one about the life that they're living. I want you to experience the victory in your life. But you've got to move right now. And what do we usually say? God, i got something else on my schedule right now, Lord. Why does it have to be right now? Does it have to be at this moment? God says, yes, I've given you the victory, but I want to see Your level of obedience. And I want to see how much you're willing to labor for it. Now, here's the point that I want to make. The victory's already won. Is it necessary for Joshua to really participate in it? I think God wants us to do everything that we can that is humanly, physically possible within the realm of our abilities. And then God says, I know you're serious about serving me. I know you're serious about finding that victory. And when I see you move, I'll know that you're being obedient. And that's when I'll give you the victory. And I have to wonder if Joshua hadn't moved instantly in this matter, would the result have been the same? Or God has said, nope, you're not ready yet. You're not ready for this victory. You haven't moved, so I don't think you're quite ready right now. But do we labor for those victories that we want to see. Do we really want to show God how serious we are for revival to take place in our church, in our city, in our families? Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes about someone who labors. 
His name is Epaphras. We, we did a study on Colossians not too long ago. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. There was a desperate need that Epaphras wanted to see met, and he was willing to labor. I think for Paul to write on this one particular person, Epaphras had to have been somebody who was really on his knees, spending hours and hours in prayer for those that he loves. He said not only did he labor, but he was like a bond servant. He was serving you through his labor in prayer. He also, Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, if you want to write this verse down. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Paul related himself to someone who labored constantly for the gospel. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. Something we've been praying for constantly around here are laborers for the harvest. We want to see a harvest. We know it's not going to be easy. We know it's going to take work. We know it's going to take community outreach. We know it's going to take involvement in the schools. We know that the work from this point on to reach our community and reach our city is not going to be easy. So we've been praying for God to raise up laborers for the harvest. And that's exactly what Jesus prayed for in Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 through 38. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. For Joshua and his army that he's leading, I don't know how many is in this army But I think every man that was involved, every mighty man of valor, every warrior was willing to labor for this victory. They said, we'll march all night long if that's what it takes. We'll go right now no matter what we have on our schedule, no matter what chores we have at our house, no matter what family issues we have. If this is what it takes to give us the victory, we are willing to spend all night long marching to this area to surprise the enemy And to see God give us the victory. There's a verse I want to look at. Turn with me to Psalms 125. You hear me say this verse all the time. I think it's one that really, really reflects what's going on right now and what we need to be doing and how we need to handle ourselves. Psalms 125, verses 5 and 6. There's one specific word. I really haven't noticed it a whole lot until today when I was looking at it. It says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. You will reap what you sow. And you will reap as much as you sow. And as often as you sow as well. But that sowing right there reflects an act of labor. It's not easy. You've got to till the ground. You've got to prepare the ground. You've got to take the seed and scatter the seed. You've got to fertilize it, water it. Those who sow in tears, sowing in tears, what does that look like? Are these pews wet with tears because we wept over the sins of our loved ones and we want to see them saved? But this is a promise coming 
from the Lord right here that reflects our labor and our effort that we put into a matter. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now, verse 6 contains the word that I really want to focus on. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Labor is continuously sowing in tears. That word continually, when it's translated, means to go, to proceed, to move, to walk, and to do it often. Are we continually laboring to see the harvest of souls that we want to see? Are we doing everything that we have within our 24-hour period? Are we managing our time well enough to say, I'm going to take this much time out of my day, and I'm really going to labor, I'm going to toil, I'm going to pray, I'm going to sow in tears, because I want to see the victory. And if it comes down to it, and the Lord tells me to, I'm going to march all night long, To see that victory take place. Moving on in verse 10. So the Lord routed them before Israel. Notice that Joshua and his army hasn't even picked up the first sword or the first bow and arrow. They haven't even encountered their first opponent. All they've done is marched all night long. They haven't engaged in any battle yet. So the Lord routed them before Israel. He killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. He chased them along the road that goes to Beth Haran, and he struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Haran that the Lord cast down Large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiel, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. What happens when we labor for a victory? The first thing that we need to do, point number two, is we need to give credit to God for the victory. No matter how much laboring we do, no matter how much human involvement there is in the situation, you've got to give God the credit for the victory. So the question I ask you this is that what victories have you given God credit for? Do you go around beating on your chest saying, look what I've done? These football players these days, boy, they just... I mean, it blows me away. Well, they always do like this. Oh, yeah, they want all the credit for it. They want to do the Superman thing. Look what I've done. I'm tough. I'm a big guy. I'm strong. I made this accomplishment. You can't do that with the Christian life because you can't do anything apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit living with you. Even Jesus himself, I can of my own self do nothing. He says, I'm dependent upon the Father to work through me while I'm here on this earth question I have for you is that what victories have you given credit to God for? We see this in verse 10 and in verse 14. Verse 14 alludes to it and it kind of reflects back on what's going on in this actual victory that they're experiencing. 
Verse 14 says that there has been no day like that before it or after it. That the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. The writer of this book does not give any of the credit to Joshua or the Gibeonites or the Israelites. He gives all of the credit to the Lord for this victory. And he's laying it out before he even mentions any of the the Israelites engaging in battle. He says the Lord routed them. The Lord killed them. The Lord chased them and the Lord struck them down. So let's consider this scene for just a moment. Here are the five kings with their armies. They're early in the morning. They're confused because they just woke up from a sleep. They've probably been sleeping all night long while the Israelites were fresh. They were marching. They were wide awake. They were alert. They were excited about this victory that the Lord was fixing to give them. It wasn't so for the five kings and their armies. They were just getting up. They were aroused from a slumber. They were startled. They were already in fear of what the Lord can do. Or what the Lord has done for the Israelites. So here's the morning sun coming up and shining in. I mean, it's right in their eyes. We were talking about that just yesterday, I think, when the, when the uh, planes would attack. Sometimes they would go in with the sun to their backs into the enemies. So the enemy would be blind and couldn't see what was going on. Maybe Joshua was using this same tactic for, against the five kings here. Maybe he was using that morning sun at their back to blind the enemies and confuse them even more. There's hailstones raining down all over the place. They don't know which way. There's nowhere to hide. Think about the fear that is going on for these five kings and their armies. Think about the confusion and the chaos that's going on. Men are scattered in every direction. And Joshua's army is now closing in on them. Now, looking at this, how much... Has God done and how much human effort is involved? So far as all we know is is the Israelite army, all they did was march all night long. But I think they showed how serious that they were. But the writer here gives God credit for this victory and for everything that's going on. He said there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So I would have to think there was very little human involvement going on during the actual battle. Do you give God credit for those victories that you get? What's the last victory that you really gave God the credit for? Do you understand that that's what worship is based upon? It's giving your praise and your honor back to God for what he has done for you. A heart full of worship, a heart that is overflowing with worship, is revealing someone who is giving credit for all of God's blessings in their life. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 21 said, He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. They're giving God the credit for those victories. Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 31 says, Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Do you ever consider worship as an act of simply giving God credit for all he's done for you in your life? Sometimes we are so blessed that we we, we take things for granted that God gives us.
God has some pretty spoiled children, don't he? <laughs> I know I'm one of them. I know a lot of times I act spoiled and I take things for granted and I don't give God the credit for what he's done like I should. Psalms chapter 100 verse 4 says, To enter his gates with thanksgiving and to his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise him. Give God the credit ahead of the victory. Thank him in advance for what he's going to do in your life, in your family, in your church, and in your city. Moving on to verse 12. After all this took place, then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still. The moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? This is one of the lost Hebrew books. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. What's the craziest thing you've ever asked God for? What's the most absurd thing that you can think of that you have possibly asked God for? Not just for personal gain, but for a victory in your life. Point number three, are there specific details that you hesitate to ask the Lord for? My response to that question is why? Why do you hesitate to ask God for anything? Is it beyond your realm of imagination to ask God for something like Joshua asked for here? If you would have been in that situation, would you have thought to say, look, God, if you you could just make the sun stop for a few minutes, (laughs) give us a little bit longer day, give us that 28-hour day in order for us to have the victory. Is that something you would have thought of? I don't think that Joshua thought this was Beyond God's capability to do. Or else he wouldn't ask for it. God had already collapsed the walls of Jericho. And this is just after coming across the Jordan River into the promised land. God had exposed the sin of Achan to give them the victory at Ai. He was in the process at the moment of raining down hailstones out of nowhere. Pummeling the enemy and taking them out. Far more than what the Israelites could take down with the sword. And God had told them numerous times, do not be afraid for I will be with you. And it was apparent that God wanted them to succeed. God wants us to succeed as well. I'm not just talking about material wealth or material possessions. I'm talking about spiritual victories and blessings. So why not ask for a longer day? God, if you could just give me a few more moments to accomplish this. Do you really believe that God wants you to experience victory in your life? Are you truly convinced that he is with you and that he is for you? Then why do we hesitate sometimes to ask for the impossible? God, I... 
I know you, I, I can hear you now and I can hear me now. God, you know, it's, this is kind of far-fetched, but I'm, I'm going to ask for it anyway. We, we go in with that little air of doubt about us. That maybe God isn't listening or God doesn't want to do this or maybe God can't do this. Sometimes our faith is so small that we hesitate to ask for those things that he really wants to bless us with. Where is our mustard seed that can actually move a mountain? And why do we hesitate to ask for the impossible sometimes? James says that you have not because you ask not. And you receive amiss because you ask amiss. Look at how specific this request is from Joshua. Son, stand still. Just in this area over Gibeon. Did it happen on the worldwide scale? Did the whole universe stop? Or was it just daylight long enough in that one area for Joshua to experience the victory? Do you have creative thinking in your prayer life? What is the most outrageous request that you've ever made in your prayers? Joshua was probably standing there saying, Hailstones, why didn't I think of that? I mean, Come on, that's something that I could have, I should have come up with. Sometimes it's after the fact that we think about those things. Notice that it wasn't just for the sun to stand still, but to stand still in a specific area. So the phrase here, stand still, or to be still, has several important implications. The literal meaning is to be dumb. And in other places, it means to be still or to be silent. However, if you consider verse 13 and verse 14 in this passage, the sun did not set until the Lord gave them the victory. In this particular context, the word must not therefore be thought to mean that the sun was completely halted in the heavens. All that can be assumed is that it did not set until the people were avenged of their enemies. God, give us just enough time to do what we need to do. Perhaps Joshua knew that if the sun went down and got dark, the, the, the battle would have been over because nobody could see what was going on. The fighting would cease and they wouldn't get the complete victory. But Joshua says, I want a complete annihilation of my enemies right here and right now. And I need the sunshine to allow us to do it. There's one other time in the Bible when something similar to this happened. Second Kings chapter 20, King Hezekiah was on his deathbed. Prophet Isaiah asked him, he said, do you want the sun dial to move ahead 10 degrees, approximately 45 minutes? He said, no. He said, that's too easy. Let's make it go back 10 degrees. And that, that actually took place. So here's the thing that we need to understand about this. If God was able to control the rotation of the planets in a specified area. God, God also did the same thing to the Israelites when they were in the land of Goshen, when all the plagues were coming upon Egypt. All the plagues happened on the land of Egypt, but they didn't happen in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. If God can do, do those things, if Jesus can stand up on the boat on the Sea of Galilee and see peace be still and immediately the storm silence. Think about the things that he can do for us.
Think about the miraculous healings that could take place. Think about the many souls that could be saved, the pews that could be filled. We're just not asking for the specific details that we need to see. So let me ask you this. What is it right now that you've been hesitant in asking the Lord to do? What is the one thing that you say, you know, I I really don't think I need to ask. Why not? God wants to bless us. He wants us to bring those needs before him. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock. That continual action, continually sowing, continually reaping and weeping. Jesus says, if you'll continue asking, that's when the door is going to be opened. So verses 14 and 15, the question I want to finish up with is this. What is the greatest miracle that you've ever experienced? Not just witnessed, not just heard about, but what is one that you have personally experienced in your life? Verses 14 and 15. And there has been no day like that before it or after it. That the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. The study of miracles, the theology of miracles. How how would you define a miracle? Would you define it as a, a coincidence? Would you define it as... Something randomly happened, something naturally occurring, something supernaturally occurring. The definition of a miracle is this. It's an event inexplainable by natural or scientific laws and accordingly gets attributed to some supernatural or phenomenal cause. Have you ever experienced a miracle in your life? There are four types of basic miracles. There's the miracle of healing. There's the miracle of exorcism, there's a miracle of nature, and there's a miracle of restoration. Do miracles still happen? I absolutely believe wholeheartedly that they do. I believe that miracles are a response to someone's prayer, someone fervently seeking the Lord, someone laboring in prayer. But here's what I think's happened. I think that our culture has desensitized us to expect and recognize miracles. I, I think there is so much uh, science fiction in movies, so much special effects, so many things that we see on a daily basis. Technology has advanced so far. And I think that has desensitized our sensitivity, our ability to see and experience and relate to those miracles. I think we need to get back to the Word of God and look at situations just like this. If God did it back then, he can still do it now. I think if someone like Joshua can say, God, just make the sun stand still, make the moon stand for just a little bit longer to give me the victory. I think if we would manage our time more appropriately, I think if we would honor God with our time and the first fruits of our time, I think we would be able to see miracles like this take place. Instead of time standing still, why not prioritize the things in our life and our time in our life? 
A lot of times when we say we're going to give God of our first fruits, most people think right off the bat, that's money that you're talking about. No, I think it involves your time as well. I think that's why so many times in Scripture you see Jesus getting up early. He was giving God the very first fruits of his day to show where his priority was. I think Joshua marched all night long. I think Joshua got up early seeking the Lord. I think all of those things are in the Scriptures for a reason. So I hope that helps in your area of time management. I hope that helps a little bit in your laboring of prayer, seeking miracles, giving God the credit. But I hope, as I thought about this and as I prepared this message, that that was the thing that I wanted to see happen most of all, is I want us to not hesitate to ask God for something supernatural to take place. Because God is still in the healing business. God wants to bring revival The Holy Spirit is still moving. We're still in the age of the New Testament church where lives are being saved. We're still under the the aspects of grace. We're still in the age of grace. And we're still in a place where God wants us to ask for the improbable and the impossible. And with just a little, small mustard seed of faith, those mountains that are ahead of us will move. Those victories that we want to see happen will happen. And God will bring the harvest. We'll have an invitation tonight. I can't hardly talk about continually sowing and reaping. Weeping in tears and praying in tears without giving an invitation. So I want to give you a few moments to respond to what God has spoken to you about. As Nancy comes forward to the piano. Just a little soft music in the background. We're not going to sing a hymn. Maybe just two verses on the piano. And give you a time to respond to what the Lord is speaking to your heart tonight. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. We just thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst right now. God, I thank you for these incredible stories like this that we can see. Time and time again, you intervene supernaturally for your people. And God, I believe you want to do that among us today as well. I believe that there are prayer warriors here who are constantly seeking your face and seeking your will and desiring to see you move, not only in this church, but in churches across our community, in our association, in our state convention, Lord God. I believe that you want us to grow, but I believe more than anything else, you want us to go. You want us to labor. You want us to weep. You want us to seek your face more diligently than ever before. So my heart's desire, Lord God, is that like tonight when these invitation times open up, when we can get together with other believers and pray. Your word says that two are better than one for they have a good reward for their labor. If one prevails against them, two shall withstand them, but a threefold cord is not easily broken. So I pray that each and every person here would have a prayer partner. Someone they can team up with, maybe a group of accountability partners. But I pray in moments like this, Lord God, when the invitation is given, that people will respond to what your Holy Spirit is prompting them to do. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, 
go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.